Do you love a good story? Her American Story is a podcast for anyone who loves a good story. First and second generation American women share their American experience. Sharing our stories helps us to relate to one another, build understanding, as well as provide representation for those that need it most. I grew up in a smaller American town and lacked representation in my community and simply in media at that time. I created something I wanted to hear. I hope this podcast reaches those that need it most, as well as serves as a collection of simply interesting stories. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at HerAMStory. Everyone has the story. Share yours with me. Email me at HerAmericanStory at gmail.com. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to We're Watching Here. We're Watching Here. This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, he is The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog. <laughs> to my Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, <laughs> Perry Cyber. All right, again, I've never wanted to be either of those things, but comparatively, yes, I will take that. Very good. I don't know which one I would take. I don't know which one I would take. Those are really two of the worst film viewing experiences I have had this decade. Which is saying something since I, like, as I said last episode, I put the Lord of the Rings trilogy on my best for the last decade. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I love Peter Jackson's first trilogy. I hate those three (laughs) They are still playing somewhere. But, oh my gosh, was I... And, and I saw the first one, and I saw it in uh, 48 frames per second, which made it not better. And I've, I, the, the most horrifying of all the press that came out around that, and oh my god, there was so much press. The uh, th- When Peter Jackson started talking about how, oh, I can't even look at things at 24 frames per second anymore, I'm thinking, you've ruined yourself. You have, you have ruined yourself. I don't know why I need to pay attention to anything you're going to make from now on. Ang Lee is the same way, and I love Ang Lee. <laughs> the holy shit has that guy got on the 48 frames per second. Uh, also, just talk about the other movie that I mentioned, another best of the decade contest. I remember one of my favorite moments of movie going. This uh, I hate this because I don't. Even, I know. I believe I did it. And I don't remember doing it. It's really my, not like me. But go favorite, ahead and tell the story. Favorite moment of going to movie this decade is leaving Batman v Superman press screening at the same time as you. One of the press uh, press attendees asking one of the, uh, what is it the uh, press representative? Oh God! Uh, you know, asking, "Hey, can we get a quote from you on this?" You just kept walking it. No. <laughs> I'm not I'm not pleased with my behavior in that oh, moment. But really it's understandable. I still I feel very bad about that. If I <laughs> if I really offended whoever asked that question, I'm so sorry. You're maybe, just doing your job. Maybe I have I understand that. Maybe they asked you if you liked the movie and you said no. Please, please <laughs> tell me that, that had to have been it. I can't believe I would have never because I, I would have just said that came off as rude. It came off as I hate the movie. Okay, good. I'm glad. Which <laughs> is the right response? Oh yes, I, but we're not going to talk about bad movies right now. <laughs> we're going to talk about good movies. I hope you are caught up with our ten through six best of the decade. If not, 
listen to it after this or go back. Uh, we'll give you a quick refresher, uh, but we're going to get through five through one today. Perry, before we start, what was your 10 through 6? My 10 through 6 was, from starting at 10, uh, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, David O. Russell's Silver Linings Playbook. At number 8, we have Martin Scorsese's Silence. At number 7, we have Jeff Nichols' Mud. And at number 6, we have Richard Lagravenis's The Last Five Years. And my number 10 was John Carney's Sing Street. I had a tie at number 9 with Martin Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street and Silence. Number 8, I had Jordan Peele's Get Out. At number seven, I had multiple directors with Into the Spider-Verse. And with number six, it was Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel. Perry, this is it. Last five. What is your number five? Number five is the film for me that, uh, looking at this list, it is the film that was the greatest, uh, uh, the, the greatest commingling of art and commerce I think that was achieved this year. It was a film that I saw that was, uh, I don't use this phrase lightly. I'm using it literally. It was breathtaking. <laughs> it was a genuinely awesome sensorial experience to see it for the first time. And it walked out and I shouted at everybody until it came out that it deserves to make $400 million and win every Oscar imaginable. And it almost did. And that is Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity. Oh my gosh, I had this on my list until I took it off. <laughs> oh. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, uh, gravity is... Gravity, I've never seen anything like it. I have never seen a, uh, a homemade film that has the sweep of an epic. Uh, it is such a beautifully directed movie everything you're seeing matters and in just 90 minutes it's so short it's <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't feel like 90 minutes uh because it is so vast and it is such a it is such a rudimentary we got to get from here to here story uh again just told with uh, just just an enormous emotional weight that is, uh, of course, jokingly counterbalanced by the fact that there's no weight <laughs> in space. Uh, it's quite purposeful because when we have the effect of weight at the end of the movie, when we have a shot that is the greatest inversion of the most famous quote in the history of space travel in the world, uh, it just drives home thunderously what Quran pulled off here. This genuinely, genuinely homemade movie. I mean, he co-wrote it with his son. He made it. More or less, as much by yourself as you can make a $90 million movie. <laughs> um, and gloriously so. It's a really small movie mm -hmm. that contains the universe. And, and, and I mean that in every possible way. I, I, I don't know why this film seems to... I can't believe how many people dislike this movie that I come across. I don't understand why. It's, 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 it's an absolute piece of poetry. I adore it. I really am glad you put this on your list because it was on my list. And I think the only reason I took it off was there was a part of me that was nagging, wondering if I separate seeing it on the big screen, does that diminish the movie? Like if I, I can't watch this at home. And so I removed it just because I wasn't completely sure. It shouldn't matter because you see movies on the big screen. Um, I will say, I don't think I have had, a movie-going experience that ever felt like gravity. Yeah. Um, and I had, actually, so my wife and I, we originally saw it. We had, we had a rare date night, and we got our tickets. We went to the uh, AMC up here in Livonia, um, and 
when we got there, the only seats available in the IMAX were <laughs> oh, front row. Oh, no. Front row to the extreme right. <laughs> oh, no. And this was not just IMAX. This was IMAX 3D. Oh. And this is a movie where I would argue the 3D is one of the few times I felt it enhances the movie. Not that time. Um, we watched this movie and it was like everything was double. Nothing was quite working. No, so I went back and I, you know, I complained and I was like, "Hey, you should have had those seats roped off because you cannot enjoy this movie from that perspective." So they gave me free tickets. I went back and saw it. Sat dead center of the theater. Yes. And oh my gosh, I I have never had a movie make me feel this disoriented, this dizzy, <laughs> but in a good way, not in that sick way, but in. I was enveloped in this. This movie grips you. And I knew it was going to happen, but I was still just sucked into this that second time. And then you go back and you look at how they made this movie. And that half the things you see on screen are not there at all. Every This is this is almost an animated movie. Yes. And yet it, it works. It makes space terrifying. I think Sandra Bullock is really, really great in this movie. I love her in this. Um... George Clooney is kind of George Clooney, but that's okay. I like George Clooney. Um, but yeah, no, I, I like this movie a lot. This is, uh, I'm glad you put it on the list because it kind of hurt me to leave it off. Um, and I kind of thought maybe you would. So I kind of pulled <laughs> off. Um, but yeah, I, Gravity, I, I love that. I feel like this is an argument for bringing back the uh, limited release of a movie over the years. Um, because this is a movie you have to see on the big screen for to get that full impact. I would love it if Warner Brothers just every year, every two years, just brought it back and said, hey, this is Gravity Week. And uh, <laughs> come see it because you, that that's a great experience. And I will argue, it honest, it, it's a, it is a different experience on a small screen to be sure. But, oh, you can appreciate the care that Coron puts in every single frame of this movie. That, I mean, I am, I am still just flabbergasted every time when you realize how often there's just debris floating around the mm. frame and to have that answer at the end when she's underwater and there's, there, you know, there's frogs and tadpoles <laughs> and fish swimming around her. And, oh, oh, we're seeing things that are alive that are moving around now, which we haven't seen for 90 minutes. I just, I, I, it's, it's, it's a, per, it's a, it's a, it's a door every frame of it. Absolutely. I think it's a fantastic film. Your number five, Chris. My number five is also an overwhelming sensory experience. Also, what I would argue is one of the best minglings of art and commerce. It is a movie that I did not expect to be great. I did not expect to get as much recognition as it did. I did not expect over the last few weeks to see as many other people having this on their best of the decade list. It is 2015's Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, yeah. A movie that every time I see it, I walk away with the same question. How did no one die making this movie? <laughs> the Steven Soderbergh quote. Yes. Oh my gosh. This, this was a great decade for action movies. I love a great action movie. So I can sit, and I consider putting the Raid films on this list because I think they are wonderful examples of what you can do with expert stunt work. I consider John Wick just because <laughs> why not? I love John Wick. <laughs> But George Miller's action epic is not just the best of them. It was my pick for best movie of 2015. Mm -hmm. This is a... He was 70 years old when he made this movie. <laughs> no one wanted a fourth Mad Max movie. I, no one was sitting around going, I wonder what Mad Max is up to. They weren't. <laughs> George Miller just decided, I'm going to go to the desert. I'm going to make a Mad Max movie. By the way, Mad Max isn't going to be the main character of this movie. Um, We're going to cover his face half the time. Yeah. He's hardly going to speak. Oh my gosh, this movie works. This is a blistering, nonstop chase movie. If you boil down 
the plot of this movie. It is, let's drive out into the desert, turn around, and drive right back. <laughs> and yet it works. There, there, there is so much energy and just adrenaline to this movie. The engines start running over the production logo. And they do not stop until every car is destroyed in this. The use of color is so psychedelic in this. I, I legitimately got mad and wrote think pieces when they released a black and white release of this a few years ago. <laughs> because I think the psychedelic oranges and blues are so essential to the energy of this movie. There are things in this movie that I couldn't think up in my wildest dreams. They're not cars. They are some monstrosities created <laughs> in a Detroit that exists in hell. There's a man dangling from a vehicle, brandishing a guitar that doubles as a flamethrower. This this is my job I want after I retire, by the way. Yeah. I just, I just, someone strap me to a car, I will play your guitar, your fire guitar all day. But that's not even the weirdest thing in the movie. Not even close. Yeah, I, I love this. I love the energy. I love that he used practical effects whenever possible. There's a lot of CG, but a lot of the stunt work is practical, which we don't get a lot of anymore. And if you compare that to some of the Fast and the Furious, where they use a lot of CGI these days, you can tell the difference. It's This came out it's the same year as the uh, Fast and the Furious where they were parachuting cars from airplanes. <laughs> and it's like it looked at that movie and said, oh, that's cute. And then uh, it decided to do this. But... It's also a legitimately, I would argue, great movie. The world building in this is so phenomenal. They do not have a lot of exposition that just explains, oh yeah, we use humans as body bags or as blood bags. We, we you know, this guy uses the... They show you all this. This is world building that you see and you begin to understand how this world works. This was a, is a movie that was addressing women's rights and... The patriarchy before Me Too was a hashtag. Mm-hmm. This gives Charlize Theron not maybe not her best acting performance, but her most iconic role, I would argue. And she's fantastic, and she's always fantastic. This movie, in a sense, predicted Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 Morton Joe is a steroid adult Donald Trump. Uh, this is a movie that's about something. It's about fighting for women. It's about going back to that place you lost. It's about fighting for something, and yet it's never preachy because it never slows down to preach. It is fun. It is just a thrill ride. I walked away from this movie checking myself for bruises. Uh, I love Mad Max Fury Road. It's just great. I I heard a critic describe it as pure cinema. I mean, this this is what movies do. It's lights. It's pictures. It's moving pictures. It's sound. It's all there on the screen. It's, it's, I love Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, it's great. I have, I have no problem with this being on anyone's list. It's not on mine. I have no problem with being on anybody's list. I, I get it. It's, it is really great. And it has, I, I think I've said the quote on the air. The Steven Soderbergh quote about this movie is fantastic. If you can find it, it's something like, uh, I don't know how he does this, and it's my job to know. I'm a director. Here's the only thing I know for sure if I directed this movie. A, I would still be shooting it, and B, hundreds of people would be dead. <laughs> I Yeah, I don't. There are shots in this movie where I am wondering, how is no one dead after this? It's, <laughs> it's great. But you know what else is probably great? You're number four. My number four is a film that got mentioned in our last episode. Right, Not on anybody's okay. list. It got mentioned in passing. Um, this is for me the, uh, it's here because it's the work of a, a writer director who I have always adored. And it, it is a writer director in their seventies at this point who, uh, finally made the movie they've been spending 
50 years working towards making and and perfect it, made the best film of their career. And that's Paul Schrader's first Reformed. Oh, An right. absolutely masterful script. He was always a great writer. Um, his, his, you know, his, his, the films he's directed are uneven. And I don't just mean some are good and some are bad. I mean, even the best ones have patches that are like, oh, maybe so close to perfection. Uh, Machine is the exception. It's a really great movie, but it's a total art film. Uh, first Reformed is, uh, First Reformed, uh, captures for me the spiritual moment of the decade, unlike any other movie. Mm. Uh, we talked about silence, but that's a more generic, you know, grand discussion of, <laughs> of faith. Uh, this is really specific to right now. So smart about how it uses environmentalism, not as a, not as a gimmick, but as a way to weight it in now to draw an equation to something that is inescapable now, uh, to force you to confront some things you might not want to confront mm-hmm. otherwise. Uh, it is, um, you know, I, I've often said in years past, I thought, I think Ethan Hawke, uh, might genuinely be a bad actor who somehow knows, uh, uh Richard Linklater knew how to control him and use him perfectly because he's never been bad in a Linklater film. And I disliked him in almost everything else he's ever been in. That started to change this year. <laughs> he pulled off a couple performances I actually liked and boy, he's great here. <laughs> he's fantastic. Uh, as this, as a minister who is, uh, who is at the end of his, uh, everything. <laughs> he's at the end of his faith. He's at the end of his hope. Uh, and, uh, and, and the cathartic thing he has to go through. And, uh, I love that. I love the open-endedness of the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. I like that it is ambiguous. You could read a whole lot into whatever's going on there. Uh, and there's no, that, that's not a disappointment in any way. No. It is probably the film on this list that most throws back to my favorite. I think it's the most seventies film on this list oh, yeah. in a bunch of ways. Um, but, oh, it's the work, it's the work of an, it's the work of a man who's evolved, uh, both as an artist and as someone who has, uh, wrestled with his own Calvinist upbringing for decades and decades and decades. I, this is a fabulous film. I had this on my list. I needed to make room for, um... Wolf of Wall Street in silence. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to push First Reformed off. And it killed me because I I do really appreciate and love this movie. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, Ethan Hawke is I mean, he's fantastic in this. Uh, Amanda Seyfried, who is a actress I don't really often think about, I, I guess. I don't think she's really bad. <laughs> That's fair. I really don't think about her. I think she's very, uh, she's very solid, but it's, it's Schrader's movie. I think he does put his finger not just on the issue of doubt, but like you said, there is a malaise and a dread that is setting in right now. And especially around people of faith. Uh, you know, I felt it myself and this movie really resonated with me. I love this because I feel like we talked about this once. You cannot begin to understand or interpret this movie apart from its form. Yeah. This is a movie that is so locked into that transcendental form with the camera planted there. It's just observing until two parts where it's not. Yeah. And those parts are key to discussing that movie. But you don't solve this movie. Like you said, it's ambiguous. And I love that I don't quite know what I think happens at the end. I have those answers that I think 
Paul Schrader kind of came out and helped people think about. He, he talked a little too much about it for my liking because I, I, I would have had fun digging for it. But uh, <laughs> I, I think he left open two possibilities, both of which happened. <laughs> it's both yeah. Happened. And uh, yeah. I, I think they're both there on the screen. I think it is a great movie. I definitely really want to revisit this one. Um, yeah, just a just a great decade for movies about that because Calvary was almost on the list. Calvary's a fantastic, fantastic film. My number four is the Coen Brothers Inside Lewin Davis. Ah. Um, again, I love the Coen Brothers. Uh, they, they were the first people we ever talked about on a podcast. Uh, I really considered briefly Hail Caesar on this. I love Hail Caesar. Um, I, I do like Hail Caesar a lot. Uh, I really, really liked the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, uh, which I thought was yeah, you kind of be Irishman to the point, to the punch of being the first uh, examination of death though, in the <laughs> last few years. Um, I like that, but I mean, the Coen Brothers seem to have at least one masterpiece each decade. Inside Lewin Davis is their masterpiece of this decade. I adore this movie. I think it is heartbreaking. It is maybe their bleakest movie. Uh, Oscar Isaac, just, he is fully formed here. He is the titular musician. He's a folk singer in 1960s New York, trying to make a name for himself, but he's either shooting himself in the foot or the victim of, (coughs) or the victim of uh, kind of the unpredictabilities of artistic life. Um... I mean, this is a movie just about, if you want to be a creative person, this is a movie to watch and think, do I? Uh, because it is constant heartbreak. It's constant failure. It's There is a heart, you know, the, the scene I think about so much is when he sings his heart out for F. Murray Abraham. Is that who it is? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen this one, too. But uh, and he sings his heart out, and he does a beautiful song, and it's just not commercial. I don't hear a lot of money in that. Yes. I don't hear any money in that. Um, there is a road trip with a jazz singer played by John Goodman <laughs> that ends up with an overdose. Um, there is, again, spoiler, but there's the last scene in the movie, which mirrors the first scene in the movie, with Lewin being beaten up in an alleyway after playing his heart out in an act. And what you hear going on inside the club is Bob Dylan taking the stage. And he'll be the one to walk away with the fame that night. Um, I think this is just another wonderfully realized movie by the Coens. Uh, I think it is a movie that you watch and you walk away feeling cold and wet. Um, I love the soundtrack for it. I love the way that the humor seeps in. Do Adam, Mr. President. I was just going to say Adam Driver. Whoa. Yep, Adam Driver. Oh, oh. Is, is wonderful. So um, I, I just, I love this movie. I love that I don't know what it's about all the time. Uh, is that cat a metaphor or is it a joke on people who search for metaphors in their film? Uh, I heard a critic suggest, is this one of the Coens contemplating what life would be like without the other one? Uh, because this is, yeah. it, it, and there's so much there and I think that's all there. Um, but it's also like any Coen Brothers movie. It is a pleasure to watch. Um, I, I really, I like this movie quite a bit. It is, even if it's not directly about, you know, them struggling with, oh gosh, what if one of us mm-hmm. wasn't around? It is a film about grief. Yeah. When it comes to, I mean, that it, he is in mourning for his partner who is mm-hmm. gone. And that really is what drives all of his, seemingly drives all of his self-defeating stuff. It's not anything other than that. And it's, it is that wonderful, uh, that wonderful terror of, you know, what if, what if you weren't good enough 
to turn all of that pain into art yeah. that would, that could sustain you. <laughs> how, how do you live with that? And that's what makes this film a nightmare and a horrifying and the closest thing to, uh, as I saw it at the time, and I think it less now, although I still think it's a pretty good shorthand description of it. It's for me, it's, it's their redo of Barton Fink. It is, oh, it is Barton Fink with 20 more years of life experience oh, that's attached to it. That is an interesting interpretation. I like that. Yeah, and I love I love the way it ends, where it began. And oh, yeah. it's not necessarily the exact same place, but you get the feeling it's a cycle. He's not getting out of this. This is not the first time this has happened. This is not the last time this is going to happen. Um, I don't know what is bleaker inside Lewin Davis or the meal ticket segment of Ballad of Buster Scruggs. <laughs> one, one of the grimmest things I've seen this decade. Um but inside Lou Davis, it's great. I have been meaning to pick up the Criterion edition of that for a while, and I think I need to just bite the bullet and do that. <laughs> Perry, number three. Number three is uh, one I have the Criterion for. Yes. Uh, uh, we've talked about him. I'm just going to say it. It's Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Oh, interesting. A okay. film that uh, was robbed of the Best Picture Oscar. <laughs> a film that was robbed of the Best Director Oscar. Uh, a, a, a film that... I, I'm still stunned it got as much play as it did. I don't think it's all that different from a lot of other Linklater films, and I don't know why this one was the one that was a genuine best picture contender. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I understand why in telling you the third best film of the decade. I'm just saying, uh, you know, uh, why either of the two films in the before trilogy, the first two films in the before trilogy, didn't have the same pull. Mm-hmm. I don't know, um, but this is it's. Uh, uh, like the Irishman, this feels like uh, a life. <laughs> and the thing about Boyhood is, it feels like three lives. Yeah. <laughs> three different lives. I don't mean it feels like three lifetimes. Uh, I know the main character and his parents so well by the end of the movie. And I have seen them. It's that we've talked about it before. It's the hardest thing to do in drama. To make drama mirror real life in that people change, yet they don't change. And that's what all three of these characters do over the course of the 12 years that it was filmed <laughs> and the 12 years that it transpires over. Uh, it's, it's a marvel. It's just, it's, it's, it is everything Linklater does brilliantly, uh, distilled down to, <laughs> distilled down to three hours. <laughs> I, I am not going to argue against Boyhood at all. I will say it is not on my list. Um, probably because of a rule I had that I mentioned in the first uh, the first half. Uh, I really like Boyhood. I really get upset whenever I hear anyone talk about Boyhood and describe it as a gimmick movie. Because yeah. it is absolutely... There is a way to do that filming over 12 years as a gimmick. And that is the one where you... Everything is a big moment. Everything is, oh, here's his first kiss. Here's him on the graduation. Yes. That is the movie that I feared this might be. But I, I trusted Linklater enough to know it wasn't going to be... He understands that life is in those moments between the moments, and there is never a false note in this. No. It is Eller Coltrane really actually turns into a solid actor by the end of this. I, I heard a lot of people dissing him when the year it came out. No, he's he's good. He turns into a Richard Linklater character. Yes, um, I think Ethan Hawke is really great. Patricia Arquette is fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a movie that he. I saw it, and it surprised me, because I remember watching it, and I've seen it a few times now, but uh, I remember watching it and thinking, when, am, when is this going to hit me? When is this? When's the emotion going to hit me? Because it wasn't. This doesn't move you with big emotional moments. And then it just, out of the blue, it 
it hits you. Like it, <laughs> the weight of everything just hits you, and it's just the culmination of everything. It's yeah. And I have a hunch. This is a movie that in 11 years, when my son is 18, I am going to turn on and I am not going to be able to get through it. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is a movie that I can tell is a time bomb for me that is going to explode. Um, because that weight of life feels real in this. Uh, yeah, I, I really like this movie. It is not on my list for reasons we will get to shortly. <laughs> uh, but not yet, because I still have another number three. All right, number three for you. The bronze medal. Yeah, and this is a movie. This is what I just added today because um, <laughs> I had another movie in this space. It was Gravity. It was. Gravity. It, was uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter. I'm it, it, I'll, I'll go with honorable mentions and say what it was. We'll do it later. Yeah. We'll do honorable mentions later. But I added this one today because this is a movie that I just realized. Oh yeah, when I think back to this movie, this movie consumed me for a month thinking about it and writing about it and not being able to escape it. Uh, it's Charlie Kaufman and Amalisa. Okay. Um, Charlie Kaufman's made two films. They are both among the best films of their decades. <laughs> I, I really still think often about Synecdoche, New York. And Anomalisa, <laughs> which is a collaboration he did with Duke Johnson, has it's done the same. So this is a movie, I, I mean, no one saw this movie. <laughs> so uh, I'll just say it's David Thewlis' voice as Michael Stone. It's a stop-motion animated movie. Uh, Michael's a customer service guru stuck at a hotel in Cincinnati where he's speaking at a convention. He's suffering from depression. Uh, and I love that Kaufman brings this to life by having every other person look the same and speak with Tom Newman's voice. Uh, it, it, it's fantastic. And if you, you know, I've never had clinical depression, but, you know, we all go through our spells. And that is the feeling that everything is the same. Nothing has variety. It's just bland. And Michael's trying to snap out of this by pursuing a fling with an old flame. And then he hears a new voice. And it's Jennifer Jason Lee's Lisa. Uh, she's a conference attendee. And most of the rest of the film takes place in Michael's room as he attempts to bed her and escape his rut. Um, I had a really complex reaction to this when I saw it. I remember. We saw this at a screening day. This had been a movie that people told me, oh, you need to see this. And I went in with very high expectations because... I like Charlie Kaufman's scripts. I like uh, Synecdoche, New York. And I remember leaving feeling just off. Just like, I don't think I like that. That was unpleasant. And I walked out. I walked out afterwards. I didn't walk out during the movie. Um, and I remember the screening rep asked me, you know, what do you think? I'm like, it's just weird. I don't, I don't think I like that. And then I was driving home and I could not figure out why I kept replaying that movie. <laughs> and I realized this because I don't know that I'd seen a movie so proficiently bring the feeling of depression to life <laughs> and that I was trapped in that headspace with him and it's actually a very astute look at that um it, it is a movie about a man trapped a man trying to find a way out that because this is a Charlie Kaufman movie you know there's not a way out you know that thing reality is gonna crush in and <laughs> Michael's own worst tendencies are going to creep back up onto him um, but it's not a movie with twists or turns. It's just a movie that plays out like real life. Like, like happens when we think we want something and then that thing we get doesn't make us happy. Um, there is a sex scene in this movie <laughs> that made me more uncomfortable than maybe any scene I've seen <laughs> this whole decade. Not because it's 
you know, over the top or offensive. It's so intimate. And it's puppets, you know, but it's not Team America. It's uh, <laughs> it's a very intimate, tender moment, and it's the hinge on which that entire movie turns. Everything hinges on this scene, and everything after it is just this horror that starts to dawn as you realize what the answer is going to be for Michael and what satisfaction this is really going to give him. Um, it's a. It sounds like it's a slog. It's not. It's a very funny movie. Charlie Kaufman's a very funny writer. There are nightmare sequences that I think are very weird and funny. There are people falling apart. Uh, the <laughs> the gag of having or the the act of having Tom Noonan voice everyone is sometimes very funny in practice. Um, but it also it, there's no easy answer at the end of this movie. This isn't a movie that where with it where a character overcomes an obstacle, there is a sense in which Michael's problems are worse at the end of the movie than they are at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> and not because anything horrible has happened, but because what he thought was an out is not an out, and he doesn't know what that out is. Um, I also forgot to mention, it's also a weird movie in which he buys a gift for his son at a Japanese sex shop. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, a weird, it's a very Charlie Kaufman touch. It, That's a, a very it, Charlie Kaufman touch. Uh, it's a weird movie. It stuck with me. It it was a movie I went from not liking to putting on my top ten list to not being able to stop thinking about. It is a movie I am almost afraid to revisit because I'm afraid that maybe I built it up in my head. Um, but I just I can't deny the impact this one made on me. I also just need to call it Jennifer Jason Lee in this movie is her voice work is incredible. Uh, there's a scene where she sings "Girls Just Want to Have Fun," and it is weird and funny and sweet and tender all at once. Um, I, I really like this movie. It's uh, it's one that really resonated with me. This has to be the best movie in history to ever come from a radio play. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I love this movie. I loved it. I loved it when we saw it. I I, I think it's great. Uh, if for for all the reasons you said, uh, and because for me, as someone who just loves to watch a filmmaker develop, for me, uh, Synecdoche, New York, was problematic in that what else could Charlie Kaufman possibly do? Yeah. It just seemed like it's, the magnum opus. It seems like the film you make seven films in your mm-hmm. career, not first. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know what how you followed this up. You, you've covered it all. Everything you've been obsessed with, you've now done. There's no other room. I don't know where you go. And uh, to wait ten years and go puppets <laughs> was a really great choice. A really great one because it, it is a fantastic. Uh, it's it's a great movie. I I, I it, it didn't make my shortlist, but I was so happy to stumble across it again when I was going through my list. I remember seeing it going, oh, I like that movie. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I, I really like this one, and I'm really excited. As I said, Charlie Kaufman has a new movie coming out on Netflix this year. I just looked up today. Netflix announced in November that it'll be out first quarter this year. So all right, we might have to talk about that when it comes out. We can so, do that. Uh, we can do that. Perry, we got two left. We got two. What is your number two? I think I said it the last episode. I'll say it again. When I was going over, before I started going through my entire lists of everything I saw this year, uh, I kind of knew these these two films would be my top two. Okay. And I kind of figured they'd be in this order. And I was right, Chris. (laughs) Um, uh, I talked earlier, uh, uh, last episode with Mud, where I said, I I wish that the Pulitzer Committee would give out prizes for screenplay. Not every year, Mm -hmm. just when it's really deserved. Uh, and boy, 
boy, if anyone in the decade deserved a, a Pulitzer Prize for screenwriting, it's Kenneth Lonergan for Manchester by the Sea. A film that, uh, a film that utterly devastates. Yes. I have no other word for it. Um, it is my favorite performance by the year by an actor in a leading role. Casey Affleck, uh, again, we talk about this thing. There's, there's a difference between, uh, a lot of actors are comfortable being unlikable. Almost nobody wants to be unsympathetic. And, uh, and it is very hard to be unsympathetic on screen without looking like you're forcing it <laughs> because people don't want to just be naturally be unsympathetic. Yeah. It's a really hard thing to do. Uh, De Niro does it beautifully. Uh, and Casey Affleck does it here, uh, to, to perfection. Uh, I talked about it over and over every time I talk about this movie. There's, there's the moment of the film about halfway through where you see a suicide attempt. And when I saw it in the theater, I gasped because I'd never seen an attempted suicide in a movie that looked like a real attempted suicide. It's always some sort of grandiose statement. It's some, you know, it's, I picture the, the 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 military man who betrayed and then said it right before putting on his dress blues and blowing his head off. You know, I think of these grand statements. Never the actual single moment of desperation where you just decide, yeah, this is it. Uh, and it it horrifies me every single time. It doesn't lose an ounce for me seeing it over. And I've seen this film like at least a half dozen times now. Wow. Um, I, I love it. I think it's absolutely masterful. I don't. I. I. I, I <laughs> Kyle Chandler had a hell of a decade. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Between this and Wolf of Wall Street alone, that's that's two different <laughs> yet similar performances. Uh, it's uh, and it's it, it just it it plays. It's such it's such a wonderfully painful experience <laughs> and it's funny like you're saying about another yeah. there are great laughs in this movie it's a funny movie it is not it is not a film that <sighs> it does not celebrate sadness it does not celebrate life it just presents it mm -hmm. and deep down it's arguing that it, it's it's worth it <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> we want to continue living sometimes and we don't know why but we do, and this is what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And, oh, boy, that's hard to do. <laughs> it's hard to get that. It's impossible to get that movie made. I don't. I honestly don't think about I mean, I, only Matt Damon being yeah, attached to it gets this yeah. made. I don't understand. Others. And, and Amazon, thank goodness, <laughs> ponying up the money for it. Uh I, I, I am, I am, I am, I, I adore Manchester by the Sea. I think it was, I, I had, th that and Silence came out the same year and they were one and one A for me. I, I could have swapped either one for my favorite film of the year. And uh, obviously I should have had Manchester by the Sea on top based on these <laughs> rankings. Uh, I mean, I, that's a great pick. I, I've only seen it the one time. I don't know that I could put myself through it. That doesn't sound so good. It is very well done. Very well acted. It, very astutely understands grief because it understands how you can grieve and be laughing at the same time. It understands that it comes out of nowhere sometimes, but also how it that, stops you in your tracks. It not just it, it beyond grief. It is it's despair. It is you know it is. I get looking at the list and go. This and First Reformed are are two films about a guy 
way into self-flagellation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> deep into punishing themselves for, uh, for transgressions and wrongdoings. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm into that. Didn't realize it. Chris, I'm <laughs> learning something about myself here tonight. It's a whole other podcast, Barry. <laughs> All right. Uh, you didn't even mention Michelle Williams in this one. Well, yeah, because I was saving it. In one, <laughs> in one scene, delivers one of the best performances of the year. Uh, who is fantastic in it. Um, and, and she's she. everybody remembers that scene. If you watch it again, you will appreciate what she's doing in every scene. It's a really good performance throughout. It and is. There's just I, one I giant showcase yeah. scene. I, yes, I didn't mean you missed it, just to um, say it in, in general. She is, uh, she's a stupendous actress yes, and, uh, had a great decade in and of herself. Um, that's a, that's a good pick. I, I considered that one. It wasn't quite even in my top 20 yet, but I think I just haven't seen that one again. Um, I didn't get out to see a lot of movies twice this year. It's kind of great. Uh, this decade. Um, and your number two? My number two is not going to be a surprise to anyone who's listened to this podcast at any time. <laughs> Um, I did not have Boyhood on my list because I had Richard Linklater's other masterpiece of the decade before midnight. Um, I love Boyhood. I think what he attempts there is an audacious, very successful thing. I, I think it works. I think the examination of a person changing over time in that is extremely powerful. But for some reason, I just find myself more drawn and impacted to uh, the story of Jesse and Celine. Um, it, it's just it, it's just my personal makeup that when I thought about it and I weighed both of them and really at one point was, well, Boyhood is really the more challenging film and probably the bigger cinematic achievement. I'm like, yeah, but before, I remember how I felt after Before Midnight. And uh, <laughs> I know what movie is the right place in my heart. Um I, I love this movie. Uh, I We've talked before. I have a lot of love for this series. Uh, this catches up with them in Greece, nine years after the reunion in France. Uh, they're a couple with twin daughters now. Um, what I love about this movie is, first off, I didn't want this movie. We've talked about this before. I did not want to know what happened after Before Sunset. Because I thought there was no way you could do it without ruining that ending. <laughs> anything you show me is just going to ruin that ending. And yet it doesn't because it deals. It, it doesn't, it doesn't just say that's a happy ending. There are consequences to decisions made in that mm -hmm. by Jesse and they echo throughout this film. And it is how that decision really is this kind of unacknowledged thorn in their relationship that pricks at different times and can cause out conflict. Um, I love this series because, yes, you are going back and seeing how Jesse and Celine change over time. But when you revisit these movies, when they come out every nine years, you are also grappling with, oh, I've changed in these nine years. I am not the same person. And I have a really different relationship now. When I go back and watch Before Sunrise, I watch it with different eyes than I did when I first saw it. Sure. Um, and I love that because it forces me to confront how we've changed. Um, when Before Sunrise and Before Sunset came out, I was single. Um, I saw this one as a married man with one kid. And this movie kind of grapples with things you realize once you've been married, which is this romantic idealism that we have, it turns into realism after a bit. And you have to ask yourself what happens to Jesse and Celine when they're no longer each other's escapes. Because in those first two movies, 
They are escapes for each other from a reality they're in. Now they can't escape from each other. And that's what this movie has to reckon with. I still consider Before Sunset the best of the trilogy, but I think this one's really close behind. I love that first half of the movie when it opens up to kind of just share this world a little bit with Jesse and Celine's friends and kind of set up some of the themes that we're gonna that they're gonna grapple with the whole movie. I love when it just allows them to walk and just get back into that old rhythm. Only now they're not talking about philosophy. They're not talking about politics. They're talking about do we remember to feed the girls? Yep. Uh, did, you know, and that's what life is. You you go from these big existential conversations to hey, should I take this job? What are the ramifications of this? Well, and and his you know the one scene that is a big the closest thing they have to a deep philosophical conversation that isn't showing off for fellow writers and whatnot is the conversation Ethan Hawke has at the very beginning with his son from the first marriage mm-hmm. in the airport, which is genius. I love that we finally get that character, and I love this movie in the trilogy because it is the one that does introduce more people mm-hmm. to it. I mean, before sunset has its has its charm of, or before sunrise has its charm of, you know, of, of the the crazy people they meet and have a one off with yeah. throughout the night, and now they're doing life together. Yeah, and and, and that's good and bad because then it follows them this back half that. Build so naturally because you have spent so much time with these characters and Ethan Hawke and Julie Delby have spent so much time with these characters that they know how this is just organically going to build into an argument where there are these resentments that you've brought this up before were seated in that first movie. Absolutely. That come out in this barn burner of an argument in a hotel. And yet it is not... I don't say this to denigrate the marriage story argument scene because I think that is one of the most powerful scenes of last year. Yeah. But it's not a histrionic, you know, screaming every five minute scene. It, it ebbs and flows just like a real argument. They are yelling at each other. They are accusing each other of horrible things. And then they stop and they calm down and they talk. And then someone, usually Ethan Hawke, can't <laughs> shut up and says the wrong thing or picks and digs. And they're picking and digging on things that we understand because we've watched them yep. for 20 years. Yep. Um, I Gosh, I think that is fantastic acting. I think Julie Delpy is fantastic because she often has to be the one who might look a bit unreasonable. Except I don't think she is. She has <laughs> legit concerns, and Ethan Hawke can play a dick really well if he wants to. <laughs> and there are times Jesse is a dick, and it just—it's this argument that feels real. And then you feel so much involvement in because I'm very—I feel very protective of these characters and this relationship because their relationship has informed my outlook on relationships. And so I don't want to see them in conflict and tension. And then I watch this with my wife. And we're sitting there needling each other like, that, that's you. That, that, that's you. And it's like, holy shit, this movie feels real in a way. It, it, not in a way that's different than the others, but it's a different kind of realism. Um, I have friends who do not like this movie because they love the first two so much that they don't <laughs> like to see the characters going through the tension. And they don't like that it feels like, why, why do we have to watch them at this moment that's tearing their marriage apart? And I, I don't think that's what this is. I think we are eavesdropping on a moment that happens in every couple. And they are having it out. And then at the end of the movie, we're kind of left to consider what might happen. But I think it ends on a very romantic note, which is 
love is not this moment where you meet someone and have a great moment and walk through a city and everything's great. It is the person I'm with. Sometimes I can't stand them and they can't stand me. And that's okay. That's what this is. And we're going to walk work through it. Uh, that last scene of them sitting at the table kind of having a tentative truce is, I think, the most romantic movie in the old trilogy because <laughs> there are stakes and there is work involved in that. Um, I love this movie, I, obviously. For me, one of the most genius things about it, and I, I, I just thought of this recently, is that the, the easy movie, the, the easy insult that he could throw at her at any point and doesn't, and doesn't even hint at it, is that, you know, he came back after that year. Yeah. <laughs> he was always there. And the fact that he doesn't throw that at her mm-hmm. is, A, the mark of a, a, a very a, a, a very confident writer <laughs> in the three of them. Yeah. <laughs> and also uh, the mark of a really loving marriage. Yeah. Because that would be an ender. Like, that's, I, you, there is no way that, if you throw that out, it's over. Mm-hmm. You're there. You've given her every reason to shut down. Yep. Even though you're right, and we know that Jesse loves to be right. <laughs> I love that I know these characters well enough by now that they give us enough information about what each other thinks the other person's done. Yes, and you can both say, "Yeah, I can see that," but also, I don't think I believe that. Like, I don't know, and it it's it just speaks to how well these characters have been developed over three films. Um, I I don't know if I want a fourth. I, 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 do. Okay. I, I, I do. I do. I wanted this one, and I'm ready for another one in two years. I would happily <laughs> show up for it. I've heard a lot of talk that this is kind of the trilogy, and it's about, I don't know how much of that, just marketing speak or whatever. Um, I would be happy either way, but if this was the last of it, I'd be like, yeah, that's a, that's a good note to leave it on. Um, I think Linklater <laughs> kind of likes the returning to it of it all. And yeah. So I'm sure we will talk about this movie again on the podcast. Undoubtedly. And, uh, but Perry, that brings us number one. What is? I, I think I know. I'm fairly confident we know each other's number one. I, I certainly do. Yes, my number one is a, a movie I love so much. Uh, we did a whole episode on it. We did, <laughs> and that is Sarah Polly's Take This Waltz. Uh, I, I just, I just think it's uh, it, it is the most emotional film I saw all decade. It is ten years old. Uh, what nine? Two thousand eleven. Yeah. Uh, and it is, it has stuck with me forever and I have returned to it. I, I've seen this film 10 times easily. Every time I have the same just raw emotional response to it, even though I know what's coming. Uh, it is so sad and so funny, so sexy, so smart. And so uh, Michelle Williams is, as we've been talking about, so willing to be unsympathetic and not going out and hunting for it. Mm-hmm. Just portraying an immature young woman. Uh, young adult. I feel no reason. I don't know why I feel the need to <laughs> harp on her being a young woman. An, an immature young adult who finds out that she doesn't want what she thought she wanted. And we're giving just enough of a coda at the end to wonder if that's really going to ever change for her. <laughs> and that's what makes it great. It is not... It is not a love story about escaping a marriage that you don't want to be in anymore. It is, like Manchester by the Sea, an absolute perfect character study. I I know this person by the end of this movie Mm -hmm. so well. And I recognize the best and worst parts of herself uh, in me. 
Yeah, as with Manchester with him, I recognize the best and worst parts of myself in in him. I can see it. It makes it makes the universal specific and the specific universal, which is always what what cracks open a movie <laughs> or any work of art for me. Uh, take this waltz. Uh, see it if you haven't yet. Oh my gosh, see it. Yeah, I I mean I cannot argue with that that pick. That is. Uh, I am glad that you beat the drum so hard for this movie <laughs> because of the fact that it seems to have disappeared. Oh, yeah. From not just, I mean, it was never going to be a giant hit, but even critics, I don't hear a lot of discussion about it, which is a real shame because I do think I had this best of the year that year it came out. Um, I've talked before, this movie messed me up when I saw it because it goes play, it goes, it goes places that most movies are kind of hesitant to go to. It allows its character to make a decision, to observe the ramifications of that decision, even if it's going to put them on the bad side of the audience. And I appreciate that. And I think Michelle Williams is, like you said, she is a full living, living, breathing person in this movie. Seth Rogen, I I think this is one of my favorite roles he's done. Uh, He's just so, he he just weaponizes his (laughs) likability. And and Seth Rogen's a very likable guy. But I think this is the first time where I don't feel like there was the crutch of he's just a goofy stoner. Like, he's a good guy in this movie. He is a good person. And you both don't want to see him get hurt. And yet you can also kind of understand why uh, Michelle Williams' character might be getting a little bored. Might be wanting something that I I get it. Um, I, I talked about that before. That scene where he explains his gag with the wife. Oh, so is, heartbreaking. Oh, uh, Sarah Silverman so, in this is so good. I, I love Sarah Silverman in this movie. Um, Shout out to Luke Kirby, yeah. who's doing fantastic work on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That's what my wife says. Oh, so good. Love the show. And he's fantastic in it. Um, the other thing I think about when I think about this movie, and, and it's a weird thing to think about, but it sticks with, it is a very colorful movie. Oh yeah, I, I that that just stands out to me. There, this is a gorgeous movie, um, which you don't always get from low budget indies. It's, yeah, it, there's a lot of care in this. I, Sarah Polly, I don't think anyone is making movies about complex relationships as well as her. Uh, between that, away from her, stories we tell. Um, yeah, oh, that, I, I'm glad you have that pick on your list yeah. because I, I really feel I'd love it if people discovered that. Um, my number one is also, it's going to be fairly obvious if you've heard me talk, if you know me, it's um, it, it's very obviously Cats. Um, I knew it, I called it. I mean, Tom Hooper, he's just a, it's Tree of Life, it's Terrence Mellon's <laughs> Tree of Life. Um, oh, um, the cat was caught in the Tree of Life, got it, <laughs> understood. Lewin is the cat. Um, <laughs> nice. Um, nice. Okay. Uh, no, Tree of Life. I mean, this is a movie I've talked about on this podcast. This is a movie that I at once feel like I still have so much to learn about it and unpack in it. And yet I don't feel it's inaccessible. I just feel like it's a mystery I keep returning to. And it keeps reading me. It, it is a, I, I consider revisiting this movie a purifying experience. Because I watched this movie... And I just let it wash over me. I mean, this is a gorgeous movie. This is Terrence Malick before that camera just turned into a twirl machine. And there's a lot of twirling here, but the, 
it feels like a Holy Spirit in this movie. The way the camera floats in this, floats around Jessica Chastain, observes every little bug in the grass, uh, just really takes in those Texas afternoons. Um, I, I, I love this movie, uh, obviously. Uh, it is one of my top five movies of all time. Uh, this is a movie that asks me to ask questions about my place in the universe, where we fit into this whole long roll of the cosmos. Um, I don't feel the same after I watch it. I feel like I've been cleansed in a way. Um, I feel like every decade, maybe, we get a uh, good retelling of the story of Job. Um, because A Serious Man was our one last year, last decade. So good. Um, but this opens up. I mean, the key to this movie is understanding a quote that it gives us at the beginning of the, from the book of Job, where Job is complaining, you know, about everything that's befallen him. And God shows up and, you know, in the book of Job says, hey, were you here when I created everything? Were you here? And this is what Malik does. He takes this grieving family, this, this woman who is pouring out her heart after she lost her son. And this whole movie is a prayer of her seeking to understand how this life she's devoted to God, what it means when he takes away, and it focuses on that that verse from Job, and then flashes back and says, oh yeah, this fits in a longer, bigger story than you can imagine. Because we're going back to the creation of the universe <laughs> and the dinosaurs, and we're going to flash forward to the disintegration of everything, and then we're going to meet up with Sean Penn in the mud for some reason, I still don't. But uh, it's got to be in the director's cut, right? It's got to be. It's it's not. Uh, No, I mean, it's there, but it's not there. It's a movie that doesn't give you that answer, but you know the answer, even if you can't explain it. Uh, it, It's a poem. It's it's a long poem that I just, I love. Uh, This is a movie where Malik talks in ellipses. You know, he, (laughs) he lets his characters talk, and then he sits, and he observes, and he swirls that camera around. And it doesn't feel yet like he's navel-gazing the same way he did uh, subsequently in, you know, Night of Cups or Song of Songs. Um, I love Brad Pitt in this movie. I think, especially in the director's cut, you just see uh, how well-formed a performance that is and how well-thought-out that character is. I think he gets a little bit of short shrift in the uh, in the theatrical cut. Jess- Jessica Chastain is just, she's magical in this. I, I-, I really love her. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a beautiful movie. I, it's a movie I have a hard time talking about because you have to experience this one. You have to watch it, turn up the sound, let it wash over you. Um, yeah, I, I, I dig this movie. I know you do. I am not surprised. (laughs) I figured that'd be your number one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought about not having it number one just to, because I was like, that's too obvious, but sometimes (laughs) you gotta go obvious. Um, but, but that's our top 10 of the decade. What honorable mentions did you have? Well, like you, I almost cheated and dubbed together not only the two Scorsese films you did, but th- but uh, all three. Okay. I thought about adding Wolf, and I thought about having all three of them be my number one. Okay. Uh, but then I realized uh, none of them are that. I'm, I'm that, you know if I, I'm asked to name who had the best decade ever, it'd be Marty, yeah. and that'd be really easy to say why. So uh, the two films that I cannot believe aren't on this list are uh, Wolf of Wall Street and Fruitvale Station. I can't. I I hated that I couldn't get Fruitdale Station in there. I just I, I don't know why I couldn't. Another day I might have. I, you know, it's just truly. Those were the two that really hurt. They are the other A pluses yeah. that I just couldn't cram in there. But uh, uh, also up there that I I 
I'm not shocked they weren't there, but I would have I would have liked to have made room for them. Uh, I I I have argued for almost the entire decade. I think Steven Soderbergh's Contagion is woefully underrated. Oh, I love Contagion and Contagion a brilliant great. one of the great post nine eleven movies. Uh, a film that gets at all of his uh, political leanings in the best possible way to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also love Magic Mike from this decade out of him. Uh, love stories we tell. Social Network holds up and is fantastic, and almost that might just be familiarity keeping yeah. it off the top. I mean, it's so I know it so well. I've seen it so many times. It's my old, one of my oldest daughter's favorite movies. We quote it constantly. It oh, it's great. Um, the Big Short, I think, is oh, genuinely. Yeah. Uh, I. I rarely want to call something groundbreaking, but that gets pretty damn close to being genuinely yeah. groundbreaking in pulling off what it's doing in that movie. It was groundbreaking, and then they took that concept and wrote it right into the ground. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love American Hustle. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I sat there knowing, gosh, I know the cooler film thing to do would be to have Roma on this list, but I, I just think Gravity is mm-hmm. more perfect. <laughs> and I love Roma. Roma could have easily been in this list. So yeah. those are a bunch of my also rands. Those are all good. Those are all fantastic. How about yours? Um, I, I there were a few you had that I of course mentioned. Uh, First Reformed was on my list for a while. Gravity was on my list for a while. Boyhood was on my list for a while. Uh, all great. I, I'm glad you were that you had him on your list. Uh, the one that was on my list from the start was my number two, and then I moved it back just because I don't feel confident enough in what I remember about it. Was Spike Jones's Her? Oh, um, a movie that when yeah. I saw, it, I was convinced. I, like, I think about a lot of love, probably in decade lists. And, and I, when I saw it, I thought, "Oh, this is the movie of the decade." But I don't know enough if that's because I'm so taken with the movie, or because I like. I think it plays into so much of the meta story of this decade. You know, our, our how technology became more personal, we became more social. I don't. I didn't know enough. I, it's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, in enough where I don't remember my initial reaction to it. But I have a hunch if I watched it, I, I might like it. Uh, I really wanted to find a spot for what we do in the shadows. Um, because I do feel comedy gets really overlooked a lot of times on these lists. Uh, I had what we do in the shadows on until today when I put Sing Street on. But uh, what we do in the shadows is a movie I laugh harder at every time I see it. Uh, Taika Waititi, there, there have been a few things that brought me is great joy is watching him turn into such a prominent filmmaker this, <laughs> this decade. I, I like uh, Hunt for the Wilder, Be- Wilder People quite a bit. Uh, I think his Thor movie is a lot of fun. Jojo Rabbit's, uh, you know, I, I think that's a really solid movie. Uh, he directed the last episode of The Mandalorian, and it is fantastic. Uh, so, but what we do in the shadows is really my favorite by him. Uh, Spotlight, I, I really Spotlight's one yeah, I've seen really a good. lot. Uh, Social Network is another one that I'm surprised isn't on here. Ghost Story I really liked by David Lowry. Yeah. Uh, the Babadook, uh, which I think is a really solid horror movie about how terrifying it is to be a parent. Moonlight, um, which is another one I was really taken with, and I don't know why it's not on my list, but uh, I just couldn't find room for it. Eighth Grade is another one that I just... Yeah. I think that might be a near-perfect movie, and if I was to revisit this list in 10 years, I might have Eighth Grade on it. Uh, and then Lady Bird is another one I really like. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's our top ten plus a few more. You got anything else? Oh, it just feels like everything, man. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm empty. I got I got nothing left. I got nothing for you. I got nowhere else to go. All right, well, 
Listeners, I want to know, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? What should be on our list? What did you like? What, what did, did you love? Us? Yes. Send it to us. Uh, I will include the email address in our show notes, but you can also tweet to us. You can find us on Facebook. Tweet to us personally, because Perry, where are you at online? You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at Perry Loves Film. Uh, and you can usually find me third row center at your local multiplex. Chris, where can people find you? I am on Twitter at Mere Christianity, and you can find me. You can find me on Facebook at uh, Mere Christianity as well. Now that I think about it, uh, and you can check out my other podcast, which is called Wasting Time with Chris, Beth, and Matt. We will be back soon with a whole new episode. And Perry, I think by the time it's ready for a new episode. It'll be Oscar season. Oh, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Cats is going to sweep it all.